0: Jane. Hello, how's it going? All good. We are not alone today. <laughs> we have a lovely guest, Kaylin Hogan. Thanks, Emil, for coming on the pod.
1: Thanks so much for having me. Good to be here.
0: Um, do you want to, I guess, tell the listeners a bit about yourself? So, you're the author of the book Republic of Shame. What is the book about? A little bit about you before we kick off.
1: So I'm a freelance journalist from Dublin, uh, living in Dublin, and um, I, before I wrote the book, I would have been reporting internationally, uh, focused on sort of international news um, right before and, and actually at, at the beginning of writing this book, I was reporting on Syria, I was on assignment for New York Times Magazine and National Geographic, um, went to Syria to, to cover the conflict uh, but I was I was back home in Ireland in, in 2017, and this was at a time when it was a few years after the marriage equality referendum, which I think brought up a lot of difficult conversations about who gets to be a family, and it was also the year we were you know looking ahead um, to the repeal referendum. And it, that year, the, um, the findings of the Teske excavation at June, the former mother and baby home institution in June, were made public. And it was found that significant human remains were buried um, in, a, in a sewage system um, on the grounds of that institution dating back to the time that the, the Bon Secours sisters ran it. And, and this was, you know, shocking. It, 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 it you know confirmed the suspicions and um, uh, of Catherine Corliss, who, who most people know now, um, helped break this story about chum and about the, the hundreds of children who died there way back in 2014. And that launched a state investigation, a statutory investigation, um into these institutions of course it wasn't just chum it, it, you know these institutions were around the country so it just felt like a very urgent moment where we were having important you know conversations for the first time in, in the cases for some families and and some people about and um, the experiences of, of of pregnant people and how they were treated by the church and state And the breaking of silences by survivors who were telling their stories and and giving their testimonies about the realities of the institutions were part of that, were part of that catalyst for change. And it just seemed like a very important moment to speak to them. And and I grew up in Dublin. I mean, I, I was born in 1988, which is the year after um, I, the status of illegitimacy was abolished. My parents were married, so if I'd been born <laughs> months earlier, I would have been legally illegitimate. That that um very harsh term, harmful term.
2: I uh, had the idea that 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 was the year. Like, I mean, I I know in my head, you know, being gay, I know that uh, being gay was decriminalised. That's in my head. I know the divorce referendum. I didn't realise that it was only 1988 that. Um, babies couldn't be declared illegitimate it, like even saying that 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 a child would be illegitimate is just so archaic and insane to me so that actually really
0: where would me. that and where would that word have been like would it just have been a term used or it was it literally like on a birth cert or
1: so it changed in it changed it was abolished in 1987 so the year before and until then it was a legal status so it it that defined and decided what rights a child would have and um, you know to their what rights a father would have as well um and you know going back to the start of the state, this was uh you know one of the reasons that uh, that parents were so stripped of their rights in many ways and married parents were stripped of their rights and uh, you know, so on on birth certs for many people who were born um, to single parents, uh, the, the father's name would not be included. Um, if you see on a birth cert, there's a this sort of box for the father's name, and then the father's profession. Tellingly, no box for the the woman's profession. Yeah. But uh, in in the case of children who were, you know, quote unquote illegitimate, um, that box would be left empty, and there'd be a dash. So actually. Um, some survivors would, would talk about being, you know, daughters of the Dash or children of the Dash. Um, and so that, that, was, that was part of it. Um, but it, most importantly, it was the rights um, that were stripped away from, from children and from their parents uh, because of that law. Um, and I, the, the final report that has come out from that investigation found that that was an egregious breach of human rights. And yeah. um, that, that continued for so long. And the stigma of that that was, you know, enforced through the law, um, you know, kind of forced women into these institutions and and was sort of fueled as well, that culture of secrecy that continues to this day where uh, people who are adopted in Ireland are still denied uh, access to their birth information, um, access to their original birth cert, their identity, the name that their mother called them, etc. So, it's had a very, you know, it has a long and ongoing legacy yeah. in this country.
2: And, and you know, um, what's particularly frightening about it is that, you know, you know, I was born in 1990, so around the same time you were Roe as well, or you're 89, Roe, I think. Yeah. You know, it seems like something from our, our, our past, you know. We kind of didn't grow up with it. However, I've um, many people in my family and in my life that have been affected, by either being born in a mother and baby home either had to give up their child often it's a family secret that you don't find out until you're old enough and you hear about you know whoever um so it very much does have a long lasting legacy like you know we think that it hasn't been affecting us but actually it's it's kind of been uh weaved into our life you know and um that's what's particularly frightening about it so so i mean give us kind of an idea so when was the last mother and baby home closed just so we have that in our head.
1: So in the, the, the year that most people give is 1998, which was the year that Besper closed. That was um, an institution run by the Sisters of Sacred Hearts of Jesus and Mary in Cork. And that, that was a congregation based in England, um, interestingly enough. But the last official mother and baby home to close uh, was the castle in Donegal. And that didn't close until 2006. Well, so I was around 17 at that time and uh, I, I found this out. There was, there was, before the final report came out, there was almost no public information about the castle. And I would have spoken to a lot of survivors, um, you know, who knew, you know, more than me in the beginning about the history of these institutions and um, didn't know anything about this one, funnily enough. It, it was sort of really not known about. And so I, I went, I went to Newtown Cunningham, a small um, town in, in Donegal near Letterkenny, close to the border and asked. I went into a pub across the road from where the building um, was still t- standing at the time and asked people. And I ended up knocking on the door of a woman who ran the place, who was the quote unquote house mother um, for many, many years. And she told me about it and she she told me that it opened in the 80s, only, you know, began in the 80s, but it ran until, uh, you know, 2006. And it was closely linked with um, Catholic crisis pregnancy agencies, uh, especially Cura, which was set up by bishops. And so, you know, the idea of preventing women accessing abortion was one of the the motivations behind opening that institution. And actually the final report showed that members of Kura, um, which was again, run by the Catholic hierarchy, uh, sat on the committee of that home. And so, you know, things like health education for women was discouraged according to the the woman who ran the place. Um, and sort of, you know, it had a religious ethos and a religious bent. So. This went on for so many years, and and you know she would speak of women going back. The women who did keep their children, going back home. And in in one case, a woman went home. I think it was to Sligo, and the local priest would not baptise her child, um, because she wasn't married. And so this must have been, I think, in in the nineties. Um, and so she actually came back to Newtown Cunningham, and, and the priest there baptised her child. Uh, and it, it was obviously a different in those you know, years, it was different from the, big, the first institutions that would have been, you know, had hundreds of women um, staying and, and had a, extremely harsh conditions. But that culture of shame and that culture of secrecy was still there.
2: Well, that's what I was going to ask. Like, you know, I think we have it in our heads, you know, we have this vision of, of what one of these homes will look like, but I couldn't imagine in 2006 they could get away with a lot of the things that they were doing way back when but you're dead right like the fact that it even existed and that it was even encouraged as uh, a place for pregnant women to go away from their family and you know under the guise of of helping them like it's it's heartbreaking
1: Uh, and it closed it only closed uh, and that I don't think that was really mentioned in the report but I, I got the original records under freedom of information and it said that it closed because there was a sort of a dilapidated roof the building was in really bad repair and it was sort of described I think as not fit for for you know safe habitation and yet they were still putting women in you know into it to stay um you know vulnerable women and and their children and it it reminded me of the reason why Tum had closed so Tum closed in the 60s early 60s and that was not because you know of the conditions it was not because that people thought that women shouldn 't be sent away to an institution or their children shouldn 't be kept in an institution that was harmful. Uh, it was because the building was in such disrepair that it was it would cost too much to fix it, and so they simply closed it down and sent these women to other institutions around the country and so you know very very similar um, within the notes of those records on the castle, it says that it was hoped that maybe some similar service could be continued under Cura. Um, so you know there wasn't a desire really to close it. It was it was sort of the conditions it was in.
0: This is from the nineteen twenties, did it? Well, is there's a first on record in the nineteen twenties or even earlier than that?
1: The institutions. The first St Patrick's, which was the largest mother and baby home in Ireland, opened in 1919. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was sort of a mixed uh, mixed institution, but it, it be, you know became um, solely a mother and baby home institution in later years. Uh, in the 1920s, Bessborough opened and again ran until 1998. So, really, since the first years of you know the Irish Free State, these institutions operated. And they sort of evolved out of the the poor law institutions, the workhouses um, that were imposed by the British.
0: So, yes. next... Sorry, Sorry.
1: no, I was just going to say, like,
2: that's funny. Like we say, it, like it opened then, but but why? You know, why then? And and why women? And and why is this shame around it? And look, obviously, it's I guess in the Catholic church women haven't had that autonomy over their body or their life. And, you know, it's very misogynistic, but I know it sounds so stupid, but like, why is it that big a deal? Like, why? You could say it about anything. Why is it that big a deal that two men can't get married or whatever, but it's still, look, there's no answer to that, but it's, it's just so crazy to me.
0: No, that just not being, it's not even the getting pregnant. It's just the not being married. It's just so.
2: Why that? Like.
0: uh, so I guess, Caden, let's say hypothetically we're back in the 1950s and one of us gets pregnant and we're not married. What would have been, and we're from a Catholic family in Ireland, what, <clears throat> how, does it, how would it have worked? Like what would our options, I guess there weren't any options probably, but so obviously would it be the case that the, the, the woman finds out she's pregnant, she tells for her family and then it's just immediately into a mother and baby home. How does it work? Yeah, like...
1: So yeah, in the nineteen fifties, there would have been no, and and this was, I mean, it was it was Catholic doctrine. It was you know this. I think that women pregnant outside of wedlock—that term—were um, seen as a threat to the the authority of the church. Yeah, uh, you know, they threatened that authority that said that this is a sin and you must not do this. And I think. You know, trying to think through it on a personal level, if you have a child and if I am the child, you know, as I was of, of a, a you know mother who wasn't pregnant when she had me and I'm brought up by, you know, someone who loves me, I don't see them as a sinner and I don't see them as a terrible person. And so that would make me question any authority that told me that she was, you know, she was someone who should repent for her sin of having me. And I think separating children from their mothers, that was part of it. It was, you know, to prevent that being normalized and also to prevent this idea of sort of contagion. So of, of you know, unmarried mothers, as, as was the term at the time, um, you know, being seen as something that was normal or okay by other women and influencing them. And so there was a need. And even within the workhouses, you know, they wanted to separate out unmarried mothers um, but it came, you know, it was an economic thing. It was, it was we, we have these sort of empty workhouses as well in the first years. What do we do with them? Let's put unmarried mothers into them and hand them over to religious orders. And it was a fear that, um, you know, similar to the stigma against single mothers today, that uh, they'd be a burden on the taxpayer. Um, and so... It was another reason that women were sent from, and girls, you know, these were underage women too, um, you know, children, young teenagers, um, were sent from mother and baby home institutions to the Magdalene Laundries if they were what was called repeat offenders. So if they'd had yeah, more like than that. one child. Yes, yeah,
0: so what's um, the difference between a mother and baby home and the laundry? The laundry after you've given birth, is it?
1: So, it, I mean, it depends, right? It's they're all sort of a network of institutions and people often went through, you know, more than one families, you know, it it could be sort of a a cycle of institutionalization. Um, So let's answer your first question through this. Let's say I find myself pregnant um, in the 1950s. There's no... There's no single parents allowance. There's no state support for me um, to raise my child on my own. There's discrimination in housing. No one's gonna, you know, want me, you know, renting a house from them or living in in a house that they own. Um, I might tell my family if I tell my family, uh, you know, because of the stigma, they might want to sort of to hide that pregnancy um, you know the priests and the church would give references for employment they had a lot of control and so you know the fear was that a family would be shunned or excluded from the community if it was found out um, or i might keep it completely secret and either way the people that sort of sent women to these institutions were often priests uh doctors um and then in the later years social workers um so you know they someone would would then send me to an institution, and uh sometimes it would only be you know when I'm showing so maybe into my kind of you know later months or mid months of the pregnancy, or might have sent me from the first you know from the first um signs, and I would be quite- you know required to stay there in the institution until I gave birth um often made to work unpaid for the nuns. And uh, then afterwards, in the earlier years, you would be expected to stay sometimes one, two years after um, your child was born. Um, Again, working within that institution. But, you know, according to survivor's testimonies, separated from your child, only allowed to hold your child for feeding and being made to look after the children of other women um, who'd been separated from their children. Uh, And so, you know, mothers had to go through, you know, sort of being around their children and and knowing they were in this institution for years and then finally being separated, whether it was through adoption that came in 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 1953. So just a a very painful experience. And then, you know, sort of leaving the institution and and then having, you know, being told to keep it a complete secret, Um, never talking about your child again, believing that you had no rights as a mother that you know and or you know being asked to sign adoption orders that stripped you of your rights as well um and and then you know can you imagine living the whole rest of your life with this with you know not knowing what happened to your child and and feeling because of stigma you had to keep it secret
2: and being told that it was your fault which is i think the 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 worst thing about it like it's like you know, this isn't new. Like obviously, me and Ro, we've heard we've heard a lot of these stories, and have had personal experiences with some of these stories, whether it be family, extended family, friends. Um, but just something about hearing you say it there—it never is not absolutely horrendous. Like I, I don't think when you hear this and and read your book and some of the accounts in your book book, it's um, it's always shocking.
0: Oh, exactly. It's always shocking. It's just. just that idea of the shame being having to go to the institution but for me it's just walking out of those doors and like never seeing a child again not even never see well in some cases i know they're reunited but you know not having any information like that is just that is just barbaric behavior like it's just and just expected, I guess, to go back into their community, like pretending they were work. I, I presume, like, were, they're were over in the UK working or mm-hmm. away somewhere. It's just, and just having to go back to their normal lives, having had this insane experience. I just don't know how women did that. Like, honestly, it's just so, it's just so crazy. Did you say that it was, that? It was in 1953 that adoption only came in, was it?
1: Yeah, adoption was only legalised in nineteen fifty three. And um, the church opposed it being legalised, um, McQuaid particularly, uh, because they were afraid that uh, you know a legal secular adoption law would uh, would mean that children could potentially be adopted to uh, Protestant families, or Catholic children could be adopted by Protestants' families, and. That was one of the, uh, you know, again, one of the motivations for setting up the institutions. Um, you know, religious rescue societies in the early years would bring women to these institutions because they were afraid of superism is how they described it. So the idea that uh, vulnerable women and girls who are pregnant would be sort of, you know, uh, brought in by Protestant rescue societies and, and their children would then be you know the souls of their children would be lost to the Catholic faith.
2: You know, I've heard a lot um, of things about um, you know, from people I know who are adopted or or, you know, um of like older people in the family being against it and saying that well you know I never know what you're gonna get. Like you don't <laughs> you don't take in someone who isn't your own as if there's a different breed of human. Like it's 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 bonker stuff. I mean it's it's really eye opening.
1: And I think, I mean, obviously there there were very there was coercion. You know, women were sort of felt that they were forced to to have their you know children adopted. And I think something that struck me though was not just the women who had physically had the women ta- their children taken from them and um, and were forced in in you know obvious ways, but the the subtler forms of coercion as well, the psychological forms of it. So I think. Um, You know, women being told in the institutions by nuns that they would be selfish to keep their children because if they tried to raise them, you know, what kind of life could they give them because... You know, they would, have, they would have no work usually because of discrimination. They would have no means really to raise their ch- child or to give them a good life. And, and this was this, the idea that a married couple could give them everything. And you'd also be doing this great service to a good Catholic family, um, you know, by giving them a child. And so that, that psychological coercion and manipulation um, was, was a, you know, a, a real thing within these institutions.
0: What happened to babies then before 1953 if adoption wasn't possible?
1: So they had sort of de facto adoptions, so children would be fostered out. And in many cases, this led to real exploitation. So children were fostered out to farming families who would use them for labour. Peter Mulryan, who's a survivor of Chum, um, speaks about this. He was... He was just treated you know inhumanely um by the family that fostered him and forced to work and you know children were sent to families where they were abused and exploited um and who didn't know that they had the right you know to say no to work even you know as they got older um and you know families i think were also uh paid small amounts as well for those children so there was a lot of abuse um before it was legalized but also after um because the sort of focus was solely on uh, these families being good in, in a Catholic sense, you know, rather uh, than anything else. Um, and illegal adoptions took place too, where uh, the children of, you know, children were registered as the, the natural child, the biological child of a couple, um, when actually they were, it was a sort of de facto adoption. Um, and that was again to hide this this stigma of illegitimacy or to hide to to prevent them having any connection um, with their, with their, you know, original family.
0: It's mad to think also that in terms of preventing pregnancy in the first place, contraception was legal. What year was was contraception made legal? I don't know went
1: through a series of of you know it, it kind of in stages i think it was hawaii that you know invented this irish solution to an irish problem um you know when I, I think it was in the 80s when uh married couples were allowed to have access to through, through like their doctor or a pharmacist uh, but you kind of had to prove that you were married and uh Again, you know, it was all just about um, the morality of it. And, and this was a big deal because during the 80s, there was the AIDS crisis, you know, and the church still opposed uh, contraception and condoms. And uh, and in Ireland, it still wasn't fully available. And I don't think it was until the 90s um, that it was fully, you know, you could go into a shop and buy them. There was a famous case where Virgin Megastores... Uh, was caught selling condoms. I think it was in in kind of coalition with the IFPA, the Irish Family Planning Association, who were real rebels at the time. And um and Richard Branson took a jet over to Dublin to to appear in court. And I think that was the year that they finally just said, "Look, this is a national embarrassment. Like we can't be making headlines for this anymore." And uh, and relenting. the
0: nineties. We're talking the nineties.
1: We were alive then.
0: (laughs) It's amazing, really, in 30 years, how far we've come in many ways, in terms of obviously the repeal referendum and everything. It just, because when you're hearing about this, if this was, you know, pre-2018, you'd be like, oh my God, how will we ever get to that point that abortion is legal in Ireland? Look look at how much shame has been around and in in our blood, in our history for so long, it's amazing that we can at least look back and be like, well, thank God
2: things have changed. Um, but only in the past. So recent. Like I yeah. sometimes, I, like, you know, I've a lot of like religious people in my family, older members of my family be quite religious and had a hard time with both referendums. But I also, you know, kind of have a certain kind of empathy for them where they were told one, one way was the right way of living their entire lives. It was bed into them for decades. And all of a sudden, in the space of eight years, suddenly gay people can get married, women can have abortions, which was the worst thing in the world and and literally so much has changed. I can kind of understand why older people are a bit scared like and um, I've
0: seen that like as you say Jane, you like I've sent me religious people, in my family, and you can see the conflict now, like just yeah. trying to trying to separate their religion and their belief in God with the Catholic church and all the negativity that's surrounding that. And I can definitely see it. And um, my mom, like just that kind of just, she's trying to figure it out. Like what, what that this is so wrong. And it's, yeah, I can, yeah. It must like be Like
2: struggling with the, like that kind of personal sense of morality. And then that kind of fake sense of morality that was kind of bed into you for a long time. It must be very, a very confusing, like dichotomy of, bleh.
1: Uh, I the, and I think the difference between like spirituality and faith and belief in God and, and the institution of the church, I think there's there's a s- serious difference between the two, you know, and when I criticize the institutions of the church, it's not to, you know, take away respect from people's faith or beliefs. And I remember when, when the Pope came to Ireland and I, you know, you walked know, in town, town? and... Uh, uh there was, there was two people who I ended up speaking with and uh you know in in our conversation they were talking about remembering an institution close to them where the children of, of women were sort of and girls who weren't married were held for adoption um and then they said you know they had voted for repeal as they were on their way to to see the pope you know and, and we're very proud of it um and had you know i think and that's i think has been a huge change because of it being such a landslide um referendum in support of legalizing abortion i think the church has to, has had to reckon with the fact that a lot of people sitting in their pews voted yes yeah. um, and that was i mean when when the church sort of reinforced their ban on on artificial contraception i remember talking to priests who said that that shocked them because they really thought it was time for change and they knew people in their congregations you know were using condoms or 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 some form of contraception even though it wasn't necessarily legal in ireland and that's where you know the church started to break with i think you know the the lives of of everyday people and yeah i think and, and that undermined the authority of the church
2: i think that um you know, right now the church has no, has no other choice, but to kind of adapt and try and kind of, um, you know, I guess be brought into kind of the modern era. So it is, it is amazing to hear the likes of the Pope talking about blessing gay marriages and, um, you know, some clergy here talking about the possibility of having women priests and things like that. I mean, it's a step in the right, right direction, but also a little bit too little too late, but I mean, it's something...
1: And you still, I mean, you still have members of the the Catholic hierarchy, um, you know, claiming that homosexuality and and gay people are, you know, causing, you know, a contraceptive mentality in society. That's a shout out to Bishop Kevin Doran, uh, you know, who said I spoke to at the World Meeting of Families and he said that, uh, he he, sort of suggested he would be open to the idea of mother and baby home institutions coming back, if as an alternative to abortion. So this was a few years ago. Um, oh, so there are, are still these beliefs within the church, um, you know, and within the Catholic hierarchy, people who are making decisions on behalf of the church. Or so, for the
2: church. I guess coming back to now so you know the reason why we're talking to you and why it was on our minds was because last week um the report into the mother and baby homes uh came out um, so you know i'm sure a lot of people have been seeing a lot of it in their news feeds on the news um, but it's kind of hard to uh really understand what exactly was in the report because it's over what three thousand pages um, so can you kind of talk us through how that report came to be i know you touched on it at the start and and what exactly is in it and, you know, why are people so disappointed in it?
1: So it, w- it was set up in 2015, um, officially got started after the news broke about TUM uh, the year before. Um, and, you know, in I think the state has sort of expected a lot of uh, kudos or, or respect for having, you know, sort of uh, set up this investigation and yet they were forced, I mean, When the MacLease inquiry happened in 2012 and it finished up around then um, and and released its report, uh, the state was aware of, you know, problems and, and injustices and issues within the mother and baby home institutions, even going back to the Ryan report and the industrial schools. Um, that were investigated and, you know, systemic abuse was found in those institutions. They knew that children were coming from the mother and baby home institutions and being sent to industrial schools and then maybe on to a magdum laundry. So because these institutions were all connected, it, it shouldn't have been a surprise to the state that these were institutions that needed to be investigated and that there would need to be a, a commission investigation into these Um, institutions but the the report it was a you know a a report um in a paper um that came out that that really forced um their hand and because it you know made news around the world uh this was set up and um so it, it investigated 18 institutions um 18 mother and baby homes and and also county homes so three county homes um and it it looked at you know it looked at the death rates in these homes, the conditions, and it did find you know it, it, that these the death rates um, you know were shocking in these institutions. Nine thousand children um, died within the system. It was confirmed by the final report. Um, more than fifty thousand women were sent there. More than fifty thousand children um were born within these institutions
2: it's from the kind of inceptions in the 1919 i think you said up until 2006
1: it is uh, like the remit of the investigation i think was till 1998 but it does include information on the castle till 2006 and confirms that
2: and when say 18 you said 18 homes how many homes actually were there is that all of them is, is it's
1: not all of them. And that, that again, was a disappointment and, and something that really, you know, hurt survivors is that, for instance, an institution like um, Temple Hill, St. Patrick's Infant Hospital, although it wasn't really a hospital, um, which was around the corner from, the house, from where I grew up. I'd walked past it every day on the way to school and uh, never knew what it was, but it was a sort of what some survivors call a holding centre. Children awaiting adoption. So, children would be sent often from the mother and baby institutions to this place, and thousands of children were adopted from there, uh, including to the US. There is evidence of illegal adoptions um, through that institution. It was run by the Sisters of Charity that also ran Magdalen um, Laundries and. Currently, are involved with RUHAMA, which is a state-funded um, organization uh, that is anti-prostitution that claims to support uh, women affected by prostitution, which sex workers have, cri- you know, criticised um, highly. Uh, so that that institution was not included within um, within the rep- the in- investigations remit, and there were there were other smaller institutions, many other, and um, including private nursing homes and. Um, you know, other forms of mother and baby homes that are not included and not covered. Um, And that was, again, is, I think, seen as a failing. Um, But survivors, uh, you know, the responses that I've heard to the report so far is that it just, that it contradicts throughout their lived experience. Um, And even when it includes testimony that gives evidence to, let's say, you know, physical abuse or to forced adoption um, or racial discrimination, the conclusion seems to then contradict that evidence, even as it is included and documented. Um, And I mean, on the first page of the report, uh, they describe these institutions as refuges. Mm And I think that is just extremely hurtful to survivors because that is a narrative that has, you know, even with the Magdalene Laundries was argued that they provided a service, they provided a refuge to to women who were, you know, disowned by their families. But I don't think if you're running a refuge, you call the people sent there or, you know, who are there penitents or offenders you know or you don't class them into first offenders and multiple offenders and you don't force them to work and you don't um you don't treat them as if, as if being pregnant was a crime um and it's clear that the church was fixated on sort of redeeming souls and saving souls uh, so the idea that this was just a service set up to meet a need i think is um, is really missing the systemic nature of of these institutions and the policies that that drove them um, both by church and state, so there was a feeling that that blame was displaced from the church and the state and put on families and put on fathers in particular um, and I think that's that 's a very easy narrative as well, like you know I, I the men the fathers are to blame where were they and, and sure there was there were many fathers who abdicated their responsibilities and, and were happy you know for women to be sent away to institutions but there were also fathers who went to court there's court cases that show fathers fighting for custody of their children who were sent who were in institutions um i spoke to one woman sent to chum um, who's you know, the the father of her child was in love with her and actually wanted to marry her, but because of stigma, was not allowed. And the nuns let him in to see her, but would not let him see her his daughter. Um, and I've I've spoken to to fathers who have been trying to search for their children also, and and currently feel discriminated against by by the state agency that is um, sort of responsible for for facilitating those tracing and information. Um, requests so i think that's it. it's just they've sort of chosen easy n- narratives that take away blame from the church and the state um which i think all evidence points um to the fact that the church and state set up these institutions ran them funded them um and their policies and doctrines uh you know were at the center of, of this system
2: and i you know you gotta wonder why why at this stage you know, we it's two thousand and twenty one. Um, you know, I'm sure a lot of the people who, who conducted this report and and who did this investigation, like, they probably would have been affected by this too. Like why is there still such a tie between church and state in Ireland at this day and age?
1: And yeah, and it's really important to remember. I mean, um, when I started writing this, uh the protests were happening about um our new National Maternity Hospital being handed over to land owned by the Sisters of Charity, uh, which, as I said, operated that institution uh, where thousands of children were adopted from and and held for adoption. Um, So, you know, and and there was just, there was horror at that. There was such outrage um, because, you know, the idea that our National Maternity Hospital would be handed over um, to a religious order. Uh, just, you know, just failed to acknowledge the legacy and um, that these religious orders, um, you know, uh, represent and, and are responsible for. Um, and so, you know, and it was sort of spun as this idea that the, the Sisters of Charity were gifting that land, but, you know, it was only after the protests that they agreed to sort of remove themselves from the board that oversaw it. And, and there's still not clarity on that, you know. Um, and so, yeah, the you know, the Bon Secours, um, I think, are the sort of biggest host- private hospital provider in, in the state. They're you know worth millions of euro, um, and interesting to acknowledge that a lot of the religious orders run for private hospitals, not public hospitals, um, and they're still heavily involved in the church is still heavily involved in our primary schools. I think it is. At least ninety percent of primary schools are still sort of Catholic ethos, or or under some form of ownership um, when it comes to the church. So this is, you know, we're not. <laughs> I think I, I said it recently that they, you know, and I kind of questioned myself when I was putting it out there. You know, is this true? But, um, you know that I think that de facto theocracy, um, is is only starting to end. Is is only starting to be broken. Um. And I think we owe that, uh, we owe the changes in Ireland now to survivors who broke silences um, when it felt impossible to do so. You know, in an Ireland where the church was unquestionable, was, you know, a really unquestionable authority. And even even for people within the religious orders, even for, you know, and I spoke in the book, I speak to uh, religious sisters um, who worked in these institutions. You know and and told me you just couldn't question your your higher ups, the hierarchy of the orders um you know they they were sort of in fear as well, some of them um of the authority of the church yeah
2: well i I just as you were talking there, you know um and you were talking about the the nuns who maybe weren't as superior had the fear as well i i just got a flashback row do you remember in secondary school when they brought in a nun to talk to us about how great it is to join the convent oh yeah yeah like you know when you're talking about schools and yeah we do think that oh well ireland's not like that anymore but only 15 years ago when we were in like third year oh, yeah. they, they brought in a young nun to tell us how cool nice try, it lads it's not happening <laughs> Like everyone was like, this is so weird, even though was,
0: obviously we went to a convent school, like with most people, but even that, it's so... Like most people, yeah. <laughs> most, most secondary schools, yeah. yeah. It's just crazy. Um, so Caitlin, what do you think, I mean, I, it, the conversation is obviously not over at all. And like, it sounds like survivors are rightly so, so disappointed with the outcome of the report. What happened next? Like, will the report be reviewed? Is that just it now? Like, what, just what can happen now?
1: yeah I, th- I mean there are people calling for an independent review um, of the investigation. I think one of the failings of it as well as the way that these commissions of investigation have been held behind closed doors with survivors not allowed to give public testimony um, with it being unclear how questions were put to the religious orders. there's just no transparency um, you know, and people feel that it's it's kind of secretive. Um, form of investigation and that that just erodes trust Um, and we have to think about this as well as as something that affects the future um, and the present you know I I, there will almost certainly be and there are already calls for a commission investigation into illegal adoptions which people think this report failed to uh, to really cover Um, And, you know, guaranteed we will have similar commissions of investigation into direct provision, into emergency accommodation, into the other institutional systems that are continuing in Ireland, um, and that have many parallels uh, to the mother and baby institutions and night and laundries. I think what's really urgent now um, for survivors is access to information. There are just so many barriers still. So adopted people having the right to their own birth certs. Um, it is a European right to identity um, that we have to respect in this country and so there's, there's no real reason that there should still be barriers to that information. Um, you know survivors having access to their own records. So you know there, anyone who who came across the, the repeal the seal campaign um, late last year, uh, will know the sort of the, the backlash and the, 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 the sort of understandable outrage at, at the decision to seal the records that were gathered by this investigation over the last five six years um, and, and you know that is an important archive yes those those records are sort of publicly accessible in other ways but but you know having applied for records on behalf of survivors it 's a kafka esque system you know you have to go through. Different agencies, different offices within the agency. Um, you know, apply through writing, get your ID signed by the guards. Uh, you know, these are things that elderly survivors just don't have access to, um, and and yet it's really important when they get their records. You know, a sort of proof um, of how they were treated by church and state, and 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 they hold important information. Um, you know, survivors are still getting back. Records their own personal records that are heavily redacted by the state, even to the extent where their adoptive parents' is, their names are redacted and blurred out, or their adoptive siblings are blanked out. And it's just sort of unnecessary, um, heavy-handedness and and secrecy uh, that's being perpetuated by the state. Um, so that I think, I think survivors really need that to change. And that is, you know, the legislation when it comes to adoption. Um, is, being, is being put forward in our names. You know, this is our responsibility um, as citizens and, and our generation, you know, I think has to realise that these things are being put forth in our names. And, you know, as Noah Brown, who's a survivor of Bespera um, and an activist who was an activist for marriage equality and for appeal, um, says, you know, this is an issue of equality. And until we actually, you know, face this, that we won't have true equality in Ireland. Um, and then in terms of, you know, the reality that there are still mothers searching for where their children are buried, um, which is just un- unbelievable and, and unimaginable cruelty. Um, so I think that, you know, we need to, we, we need to give them some justice and some peace um, that, you know, there needs to be um, the dignified, uh, Identification where possible and 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 burial of these children and and they need to have you know be identified and marked and and respected um, and right now we still don't know where hundreds of children who died in Vesper are buried and that's just and yet the, the lands are being sold off and developers are being called in to to build over grounds that where, where children might be buried um, who
0: know what's scary is the people who know are so old you know like obviously. A lot of the nuns and are very very old now as well and that's scary too isn't it just that idea that exactly like, there's anyway. an ur-
1: there's an urgency here you know there, there's a real urgency and and um, i think there's you know the the commission's interim report said that affidavits submitted by the nuns were inaccurate and misleading and I was baffled reading in the the final report that apparently a member of the daughters of, there was no member of the daughters of charity still alive that worked in St. Patrick's mother and baby home. And I, I spoke to one. So, uh, you know, that just doesn't, that's kind of confounding and
2: horrendous. Oh my God.
1: Yeah. So, you know, it's, it's whether, how much to what extent you can trust the report. And I think that's, that's really unfortunate because I think, um there there needs to be trust in that and uh survivors have waited so long for this as well and survivors have died waiting mm-hmm. for these answers um so there
2: what can people like is there anything tangible that maybe people listening can do whether it be writing to their TDs or you know what what can people do here because i think that you know it's so heartbreaking but you know, we almost feel like this is, this is out of our hands, you know, this isn't a referendum we vote for, you know, what, what can we do?
1: I mean, I think that we definitely have, people definitely have the, you know, the capacity to to change these things and, and to push for change. And I would, you know, listen to survivors. I don't want to speak on their behalf. Um But I think, you know, activists like uh, Noelle Brown and um, there's the Adoption Rights Alliance, which is, you know, um, led by survivors and and um, represents, you know, the interests and rights of survivors, um, and 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 is pushing for legislation and, and rights. Um, Justice for Magdalene's research has done a lot of important work on this as well. But but writing to your TD is making this, you know, it, it's all about political will when it comes to things like this. And I think having followed it for years now, um, repeal the seal was just this huge moment. Um, and I think many people suddenly came to this for the first time and thought, you know, well, what is being done? But survivors have been speaking out about this for so many years. And and I think, but but I think now the only sort of kind of sense of hope at the moment since the report came out is the public response, is the fact that there's an overwhelming surge in support for survivors to have the right to access their information and to have the right to their records. And so I think that, but that can't just end, you know, this is, it's, I think it needs to be sustained and people need to realize that until these issues are resolved um, the pressure needs to stay on. Um, and so that's, I think what we can do. I think in the past, you know, a couple of years, we've seen that you
2: know our generation we've been really instrumental in changing laws um in a real tangible way so i think there's almost this like renewed sense of um empowerment you know like like we can do it we can we've done it before let's do it again
1: definitely and we're and we're trusting each other i think i think those referendums you know were moments where we looked around and said oh we can trust our country Mm -hmm. you know people who had believed in those rights, but felt that maybe there was a silent majority in Ireland, you know, that that didn't, that wasn't our Ireland, I think we've come to realise that actually we can trust each other. And those institutions made people afraid of each other. They made neighbours keep secrets from each other. Um, Even family members keep secrets from each other. And so I think we're breaking that and we're beginning to trust each other and speak to each other um, and that there's power in that. And I think that drives change. Absolutely.
0: Yeah. Well, thanks, oh, thanks Kaylin. Yeah, thank you so much. You, you're just you such a fountain of knowledge. You just speak so eloquently about, about such a difficult topic. Um, so if people want to read your book, it's called Republic of Shame. I presume you can buy it all no good bookstores um it's really just a phenomenal account of just so many survivor stories such a huge piece of work I how long did it take you to put together like it's
1: it was, uh, more than a year yeah more than a year researching and writing and, and speaking to survivors
0: it's it's a great a great read especially uh, you know right now just it's it's obviously so heavy in the news but this just gives it's it's really about the survivor stories and that's I think what we keep keep needing to to talk about. Um thank you so much for coming on, on the podcast. Could people find you on Instagram or do you share? Um, you? Yeah,
1: Twitter, Twitter, Instagram, all of them, yeah. Um and you know, yeah, the the book is in in bookshops. I always sort of suggest support your independent, yep. local independent bookshop where you can. Uh you know, it's an important time for that. They need it. So um but yeah it's available and uh I think there just there's many more stories that survivors you know told and are included in the book and I think it just means a lot um for those to be heard. Absolutely. Thank you so much. Thank Ooh, you, good. thank you both. Yeah. <laughs> it's great to talk. <laughs> yeah, thanks. Thank so much. You. All right, cheers. Bye.
0: Bye. Bye.